Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist, with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, have one thing in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Adam Williams, CEO of Takumi, an influencer marketing platform based in London and New York. Great to have you here, Adam. How are you? Yeah, great. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Before we get into all the ins and outs of influencer marketing, influencer culture, what that all means, why don't you just give us a little bit more of your personal background and what got you specifically to Takumi, because you do have a background at Spotify, you've done a few other things. So kind of give us a snapshot of who you are and why you're currently immersed in all things influencer. So it all started when I joined Chrysalis Radio. So got into radio, sort of like just selling sort of spots on sort of like Heart FM and Galaxy in London. I always, though, had a passion for digital. So then moved into the digital part of the business. So was doing things like WAP sites at the time, digital radio, emails, websites, all those types of things. And I really, really enjoyed that. I then also got made redundant as that got bought by a bigger business and things moved around. But I was very, very lucky to then go to Spotify. Spotify was an incredible seven years, went from sort of selling to then being the MD of UK Benelux and Ireland. So had a real good time there. And it was an incredible culture. It was very collaborative. They taught you so much. They were very open. So you would learn as this business is sort of skyrocketing and also had a lot of fun. For honesty, it was around music. It was very cool people. So we had a lot of fun with it as well. I got to a point, though, where I was like, cool, I need to go and do something else. At the time, I wasn't married, didn't have a kid. So I was like, cool, like, let's go and sort of like try this myself. So left, set up a company called Words Won't Do, which does, still does, personalized video messaging. So I think like Netflix meets Moonpig, which I don't know if will translate in the US, but effectively like sort of online cards. The Netflix does, definitely translates. <laughs> <laughs> the Netflix, but yeah. Unfortunately, though, it was just when Brexit started to happen. So it was when that sort of like the vote referendum went through. In the end, like funding really dried up certainly for us. So I ended up sort of having to do a lot of the manual work. If I'm honest, I'm not very good at video. I'm not very good at video production, which made it tough. But we ended up building a site. We ended up launching it. It's still running today. Christmas is always going to be our big time. But I also got to the point where I was like, okay, I'm getting married. I'm having a kid, all those types of things. So I should probably go and look at getting a a job that's paying the bills. And also while I've been doing my own thing, I did some consultancy work and I'd, I'd ended up working on a brand that was trying to launch, which was going to work with the world's biggest football players. It's like Messi, Ronaldo, Beckham, those types of guys. And that's where I got introduced to influencer marketing. That's where I suddenly found sort of like we were looking at these guys like Instagrams and their Facebooks and every single touch point they had. And I was like, wow, this is really powerful stuff. That was when also Takumi came to me. And so as that sort of like the funding hadn't come through for the football business, which was called Eleven at the time. I was like, cool, what else is out there? And that's when Takumi was there. And I just really loved them. Great founders, two Icelandic, one Finnish. Again, very open, really, really interesting. But they were also doing stuff really well. Like it was all about quality. It was all about the quality of the people they worked with. So that's how I got into it, really. And I've now been here nearly two years and having a lot of fun, I think, again. Fun is an important thing to have in no matter what you're doing. 
especially when you're in these spaces. And I definitely see their through lines there. There's music, there's entertainment, the football piece, and it all culminates in this influencer experience. And what I'm curious about to just lay the foundation for the conversation is influencer marketing is everywhere. We hear it talked about, written about, spoken about. In your mind, what is it that makes Takumi different? What is the piece of what you guys do that makes it stand out from the rest of the influencer space? For me, there's two things. One is the technology that allows us to work with hundreds of influencers. So we can work with hundreds of influencers on a single campaign, which means you can get incredible diversity. We also know that the micro-influencers tend to have much higher engagement than bigger influencers. And so all of a sudden, you can be talking to niche audiences all over the place, but having incredible impact on them. And then on top of that, I think it's the quality of the work we do. So we go through 11 different stages of verification. So we make sure that who we're working with really are good, that they're not defrauding sort of like the industry or our clients or us, but also they're the right fit for our clients. So you've got to have technology and people together. And it's that very special blend that has really worked for us. We're also only on Instagram which means that we're experts in that space. It's where 80% of the money is. We really want to go down this one route, make sure that we deliver on our clients by making sure that this content is really, really good. A few things started to come up in that answer. One is this idea of verification, this idea of there being this sort of circular economy, for lack of a word, of trust, right? There's you guys as the agency, there's the client, and then there's the influencer themselves. And it would seem or it sounds like trust is a big part of making all of that work effectively. I think trust is key to influencer marketing. Without it, it doesn't work. Obviously, authenticity needs to be in there. But if the consumer doesn't believe that the influencer is being authentic or that they are actually interested and believe in the products, then it's not going to work. And actually, from research that we've done recently, so we did a big study where we talked to 4,000 different people across the UK, US, and Germany, and across marketers, consumers, and influencers. And trust was the one thing that popped up on a, on a constant basis. And sort of like brands trusting influencers to obviously translate their brand to their audiences, but also audiences really trusting influencers to signpost stuff correctly. So label it with hashtag ad, because these guys are really super savvy and they know when they're being sold to. And so if you're not highlighting it, or you're not signposting it, then actually they don't trust the influence and they don't trust the brand, which I think is really interesting because it sort of starts to self-police itself as people start getting more savvy with it. I've noticed over the years, I spoke at a conference about a year ago, and there was an agency there that was talking about them increasing their influencer marketing spend. It was a bigger part of their budget as they were highlighting their proposal for the future and, and what have you. I thought about that At the same time, you see that though trust is important in the influencer marketing context, that people are finding, they recognize trust is important, but at the same time, their rate of trust is going down. How does one kind of reconcile that environment where people want to trust, they recognize it's important, but are also finding it difficult to trust the messages that they're seeing from influencers? I think it depends on the influencer. I think the really good ones, they are really open, honest, they over-communicate with their audience. But I think the way to look at influencer marketing is, it's word of mouth marketing. It's effectively your mate telling you 
this is great. You should go and check it out. So if someone gave you a recommendation for a restaurant or a jacket or a pair of shoes, then actually you'll listen to that because you know that person, you trust them. And actually, even from our survey, 19% of people said that they would trust a recommendation from an influencer more than they'd trust it from their own mates, which I think is an incredible stat. You probably need to get some better mates, potentially. But also these guys are like, they're special in that they know that they're niche like audiences sometimes or, or niche passion points. So they can really get into understanding like fashion or beauty or health or fitness. And so people follow them because they're like, actually, you really know what you're talking about. You say it in my style and I really like that and I really like that honesty. Definitely trust is an issue, but when influencer marketing is done right, it only builds trust. And that's what I think as an industry, we all need to be pushing. Because you also, you'll buy products because you trust the brand. And quite often, like you will buy something that's more expensive because you trust the brand. Often could be an irrational thing. You might think, well, it's better quality or their ads look more slick. And so they're probably a better brand. But you'll spend more money on insurance potentially because you go, well, they're probably better. And so again, trust, I think, comes into all purchasing decisions. But it's so key to influence marketing because actually, if an influencer loses that, the audience will stop following them. I've spent a lot of time in influencer marketing and culture. I tend to use the culture word rather than the marketing word just because of the way I entered into it as someone who was a part of a multicultural advertising agency and started a conference in 2010, literally called Influencer Conference. The whole idea was bringing influencers together to have these sorts of conversations. But one of the things that I talk about and also write about is that when I started Influencer Conference in 2010, I wasn't looking for influencers because people who were influential didn't call themselves influencers. They were singers, they were screenwriters, they were artists, they were business people, they were just doing a thing. And when you started to talk about the footballers, for example, right? Like Messi is messy because he's amazing at this <laughs> one particular thing, right? He's not an influencer because he puts up videos doing things around football, right? So I'm curious, how does one reconcile those two realities where I know that people who are considered influencers now are working hard at the business of influence, but I think that's different than being highly skilled and marketed at something and then being influential. Does that distinction make sense or am I just old? No, I think it makes a lot of sense. But also, if you look at the content that someone like a, a Messi or a Ronaldo makes, generally it's... It's not very engaging. It's not that interesting. It's only because they're famous and they've probably got lots of money that you go, what does their lifestyle look like? However, I think there's a big difference between being famous and being influential. So you can be someone who's only got a thousand, 10,000 followers, but your followers are really engaged. They really like your content and they want more and more and more. Where a lot of people just follow Messi or Ronaldo because they're famous and they just want to see what they do. And actually, when Ronaldo tries to sell me green Egyptian steel, like it's not something that I'm massively excited about if he puts that on his Instagram. Is that a thing? Yes. So he was, he was one of their ambassadors. And so it's him promoting Egyptian steel, which is apparently green and environmental. I'm not quite sure how that works, being steel. It's one of those things where I think influential and celebrity or a star are very, very different things. Don't get me wrong, there are definitely some people who can be very influential as a star and they can talk about brands and they can give it a whole load of reach and exposure. But actually, 
is it someone that you really want to get into? So you look at Beckham now, or David Beckham, he's really built the culture around the brands that he works with. He spends a lot of time, but he really gets into it. And he's good at content, actually. Like you look at his feed now, he spends a lot of time. It's about his, him, his family. So you get to understand who he is. And then when actually he talks about a brand, you're like, actually, cool. I definitely can see you wearing that or drinking that or eating that. He does go and eat in a lot of nice Japanese restaurants a lot, if you don't follow his Instagram. It's an interesting conversation, and I think it's going to ebb and flow, and we'll learn more. And it sort of comes on to one of the topics where definitely in these walled gardens of Instagram, it can be really hard to really measure the impact, like what is actually happening. So yes, we know that you get great content. We know that you're getting awareness. But can we actually track if that's making people go to your website or sell? Those are really hard things at the moment, and I think that will change moving forward when checkout and those things start getting rolled out fully, but it's, it's one of those harder things to track. We can jump to this because I'm glad you mentioned the tracking piece of this in the sense that Instagram announced, they had talked about this, that they were going to remove likes from their platform. I remember maybe spring or even, even late last year, that was at least announced that they were thinking about that. Well, they've been testing it in Australia and Canada, I think it is, for a while. Okay. So they've, they've tried it in a couple of other markets. And now it's becoming now policy. And I'm curious because it seems like the like might be going away. And maybe we can talk about the meaningfulness of that. But also the measurement is now being pushed perhaps toward commerce, meaning that I may not know that you like something, but now I'm measuring whether or not you engage with it by the fact that you made a purchase or went to a site or, or something like that. So I'm curious about where you see pros and cons or conflicts in those two positions, because we always have to measure something. For me, I think it's generally a really positive thing. I think there are a lot of people who end up chasing some of those vanity metrics who try and compare themselves. I think sometimes it can also drive content to be a bit similar because someone will see someone else does that. They're getting high likes, so I'm going to go and do that as well. So I think from a mental health point of view and possibly from a creativity point of view, there's some really good positives. And also as a platform and also as the influence, you get to see your own likes. So you can still go into your insights and check that out. And so you know if it's working or not. And so as a brand who would, let's say, work with us, we would get all those insights. So it's not like it disappears, but I also think it is good that we start looking at other metrics. You can look at the saves, you can look at the shares, but I absolutely, if you were being a slightly more cynical individual, you'd say, well, they're getting rid of that because they're going to fully roll out the checkout. And actually that's how they'll start tracking it. But also like, I think you could have done both personally. Like if you could prove to a brand that if they spend a thousand dollars and they get $5,000 of sales out the back end, they're only going to put more money in. Like it's going to be another great channel. And so it allows them to sort of get people to spend more money. In my gut, I feel it's a positive thing. I don't think it really affects anyone. I know there were some very negative stories of influencers just saying, oh, I'm not going to be able to make any money anymore and all this sort of stuff. But I'm not sure they fully understood quite what was happening with the likes. But also, you should be doing it on impressions. You should be doing it on other things that are actually, I believe, more solid metrics. And definitely engagement, I think, is the one that people will move more towards. I think they will have to go even further to then impressions. And then it should absolutely, for it to be a really big, mature industry, we have to be able to track those sales. 
Facebook are pretty smart with this stuff and they will work out how to make that work. TikTok are going to introduce it as well. It's coming and they've already been testing it. I just think it's been a very long time unless they've been finding some other clever trick to make even more money. Actually, I'm surprised it's taken them so long to roll it out. Engagement is an interesting metric. Many brands, many organizations will use that as their way of determining the relevance of a particular piece of content. My question is, the way in which we're thinking about engagement in a digital perspective, is it in the same vein or in the same spirit as engagement in a non-digital life or in our physical experiences? Are you getting kind of where I'm going with that? For me, engagement, and it depends on what a client wants to get out of something, probably what the brand is or what category it's in. But if someone's engaging, if someone's liking, if they're commenting and commenting again, it means that they've paid attention, they've looked at the post, they've understood what the influencer is trying to get across. It's not just a generic lit or something like that where that could very easily be a bot, but where people are actually engaging. And I think the really interesting thing, certainly working with the smaller influencers, is that they respond to their audience the whole time. They don't leave a comment unreplied to. And for them, that's really important. That's where they build the engagement and the authenticity with the audience. Because actually, if someone's responding to you, you should respond back. Like, it's just a polite, nice thing to do. But also, it means that people start to understand who you are, and they can see you having a conversation. And I think that's really important. So for me, engagement is important. It's obviously not, and it's very trackable, but is that actually going to lead to a sale? It's a really hard thing to know. But also, if you see something once, and then you walk past the shop and you see the same dress, are you going to go in and buy it? What was the thing that made you go in? Was it because you actually saw it somewhere else and you've just been reminded? But I think that's the same with all advertising. Like, what is the thing that actually drives you? Sometimes it's going to be a need. Like, I need a hammer because I've got to go and fix something. Or I need a jacket or a pair of shoes because I want them. Or a pair of sunglasses because they look cool. But if you see someone else wearing them and they look cool, and that person, you're like, I love their style, it's going to be working on your brain about, actually, that's something that I think would look really cool with me because it's a similar sort of style and I like their vibe and what they're doing. And that's a slightly roundabout way of describing it, I think. But I still think it's an important metric. But the time we chatted about earlier, the ability to be able to lead from, actually, I saw it with this influencer to, I then went in store or went straight online and bought it. Joining those dots will be really, really powerful. I'm interested in the white paper that you guys published. And I referred to it in, in one of my essays that I wrote for Media Village in the control element of it. And I want to tie control to this idea of authenticity because influencers are influencers in the way they create their content because it's supposed to be this very authentic, unabashed way of looking at the world, a peek inside their lives or their perspective or however one wants to frame that from a branding perspective. But yet agencies, as the business has matured or the sector has matured, are looking to have more and more control over what influencers say and how they position themselves. How does one reconcile the desire for authenticity, which is what drives the market, with this need for control, which is on the more corporate slash brand side of it? For me, I think it's about brands understanding where influencer marketing sits within their media mix. And definitely as the industry is maturing, brands are starting to understand that. Like this does this, that does that. 
Because if you want to control everything, so and the interesting stat that came out of the white paper is that 88% of brands or marketeers trust influencers. That's a great, that's a good high number. But then 46% of those marketeers also want to have utter control over the caption and also the creative content. And to me, that's not influencer marketing. That's not using someone as a creative director and someone who understands the audience better than anyone else. If you're having that amount of control, like you should just go and buy an ad and then you should go and stick it on whatever social media or website that you want to stick it on. For me, that's the difference. And in the research, like one of the top things, I think it was second in the US, but only by a slim margin, was that influencers wanted that creative control. Like it's their audience and they feel very passionate about it. I don't get me wrong, there are some industries that like alcohol or pharma or finance, where you've got to have certain regulations that need to be make sure that they're covered. But I don't think 50% of marketeers really need to be having that control. And you know what? When they let go, it's really interesting to see the brilliant creative content that comes out. Because if you are too prescriptive, certainly in a brief or you push a, an influencer down a certain route, actually the content they're going to produce is not going to be that good because you're taking away a load of what they bring to the party because you're just getting them to do an ad. There's always going to be a bit of tension because one owns the brand and it's really important that but the best creative content and the best influence marketing content comes when the brand works really, really closely with the influencer and they work on the creative process together. But you have to give over some of that control, which is really terrifying for lots of brands. But actually, when you do, it allows the influence to go, look, this is how I see the brand. This is how I translate it to my audience. And you know what? It will resonate and it will resonate more because they know who they are. If someone's only got a thousand followers, they know those people inside out. They're talking to them on a regular basis. So they're able to make content that's so relevant to them. Where do you think is the root of that need for control? It sounds almost when I read those things, and this is someone who is critical of influencer marketing, but I'm also critical of almost everything, right? I'm kind of cynical. But nonetheless, I do, even with having critique, I do understand that it works because of how it is. And it's this kind of the person who killed the goose that laid the golden eggs. Like the more you come in and try to control it, the more likely you are to make it less effective. So I'm curious that we know this instinctively, right? That's why the fairy tale parable exists, right? What motivates brands and organizations to continue to push for something that would seem to be antithetical to the very nature of what they're trying to accomplish? I think it's just tradition. I think it's the way they work. They've always had control. And certainly, I think for some brands, certainly if you think luxury brands, they've spent years building a premium into their audience or into their brand, which allows them to charge more for it. And so they are very, very, very nervous about someone else taking that and twisting how the brand should be represented. It quite often takes a lot of time for influencers to work with those really sort of high-end brands just because it takes too long for them to sort of like work out a mutual way of doing stuff. But also it raises another point from our white paper where 67% of influencers have been asked to contravene the guidelines by the FTC or ASA in the UK because I don't know the real reason why, but that's a huge number of people who's like going, actually, I want to be really untransparent here and I want to pretend that this isn't an ad. And I'd like you to just say it's hashtag sponsored or hashtag ambassador or just put nothing at all. 
And for me, I think that's more of a worrying thing because I think that's brands really not understanding the power of the platform, but also not understanding the audiences who are super savvy now. And they can see through that stuff instantly. That's just another version. I can only imagine that the brands believe that they can be more organic or it will look more organic if they don't have those tags. But the problem is everyone sees through that and actually people all unfollow. We've got a whole load of research. The white paper covers it in multiple different levels. Like, what is it? I think it's 68% of consumers will unfollow an influencer when they do something that they feel is unrepresentative or unrealistic in lifestyle or body image, which I can't imagine that being a comment that would have come out two years ago where everything on Instagram was about this beautiful, whimsical, sort of over-the-top edited photos, where now stuff is becoming much more real and it's about real people. Clients are asking us to talk about or have influencers who are real people as well. And it sort of comes back to the mental health thing, I think, as well, which is actually people are getting much more into, let's be real, let's sort of like show a realistic lifestyle. Even if they take beautiful photos, they now quite often do like behind-the-scenes photos of them being silly or not actually looking as cool and polished as it might seem. What do you think accounts for that kind of shift in the cultural norms of expecting a certain sanitized reality? I made a point in one of my notes is what's the difference in influencer marketing between what is aspirational and what is fantasy? If you think about traditional brand marketing, be like Mike, Michael Jordan, you know, famous Gatorade, right? That that was aspirational. I was never going to be able to dunk a basketball. But some of Instagram seems at some point it fell into the fantastic. I'm curious as to where you think recognition of that difference happened and where there was potentially maybe pushback or a balance that started to happen there. I suppose all of us, probably when we first went onto Instagram, really enjoyed that, as you call it, aspirational, but fantastic. It was really overly beautiful and wonderful. But I think like with lots of stuff, you can only look at that stuff for a while because actually you do get a bit envious and you feel a bit uncomfortable about it. But I think the big change actually happened when they introduced stories because I think all of a sudden you had all this whimsical stuff, but then all of a sudden you had the real life stuff, which the stories allowed people a bit more rough around the edges. I think the influencers themselves really started seeing that they were getting so much sort of engagement on stories that they were like, actually, this is what we should be doing more of. And I think their audiences really enjoyed that. I think there was definitely a thing where it was covered in the press loads, like the number of influencers who just sort of went, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. I've got a million followers and I'm really unhappy and I constantly airbrush myself and I'm not eating and blah, blah, blah. And I think all of those things really sort of like started resonating with people going, actually, that's true. Like, if you're the one who looks beautiful and wonderful all the time and you're feeling awful, I'm the one definitely feeling awful because I can't even live what looks like an awesome lifestyle. For me, I think it was stories, though, that suddenly gave them a different creative outlet that they couldn't be as polished on because that's just not what stories are about. But also, most of the people who were doing great content on Instagram at that point in time were not video people. They were very much stills and images. All of a sudden, I think that just suddenly they saw the success of that and then they sort of decided that that's where they wanted to follow. I want to use this moment to pivot a little bit because you mentioned it in the lead up to that question, which is the regulatory environment. And I want to tie 
regulation to privacy and security. So I want to maybe link those three together and feel free to parse them wherever you feel appropriate. But as you see a, a rise in a platform like a TikTok and understanding your focus on Instagram, but I'm sure you keep an eye out on what's going on in the industry, there's security issues around TikTok. Some of them are political and others of them are about where the content is coming from. How is the site itself being used, especially because there's so many young people on the site. So I'm curious, as the influencer marketing environment matures, where do you see this regulatory security and privacy all playing a role in what that future looks like? I think it's everyone's responsibility. I think the platforms need to take more responsibility. I mean, Facebook's been incredibly good about ignoring that for as long as possible because it goes, we're just the shop front. We're not the people putting the content in there, which has done them very, very well until now. And I think most big tech businesses now just get away with doing what they want to do until they get caught or fined. And then they generally get fined huge amounts of money, but it makes no difference to them. (laughs) They have deep pockets. You find them $20 billion and they're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, we were a bit naughty, sorry. Which is terrifying. Definitely, I think the platforms need to be involved. The FTC needs to get stricter. But I'm also not too worried about it because it's still a growing industry. We're learning about what is good and what is bad. But I also think the industry bodies like the IAB really need to sort of like step up and really sort of put some proper guidance of best practice. I think that really has to happen. But also there needs to be potentially a central like verification tool still. I mean, there are loads of advertisers that don't really trust Facebook's metrics, but that's what they pay out on and they pay billions of dollars. Like TikTok's a really interesting one. So we're keeping a very close eye on it. It could be one that we end up using or sort of like going on to at some point in time. I do have concerns about fraud. Like fraud was the big thing on Instagram for two years. I don't think it's such an issue now that we've got so many different tools that allow us to check into influencers and we can get influencers to send us their insights and all those types of things. So we can make sure that they're not being naughty. I don't feel that with TikTok. When we've chatted to TikTok, I don't think they seem particularly worried about it. They're just going fast. But I also think people would quite like it because they are not Facebook and they're not Google. And so actually being able to give advertising dollars to someone else is really interesting. They've also got huge engagement. So again, it's another platform, it's evolving, it's really creative, but I do think the platforms, the advertisers, the regulatory bodies, and also other sort of services like us need to all be in a conversation and we've just set some really quite rigid standards and like we should try and have higher standards than anyone else because it's such a personal platform, such a personal industry, we should have better and higher standards than everyone else because People hold influencers to much higher standards than they probably hold brands themselves. And so I think that it's something that we need to consider. I wrote a piece a little while ago for Media Village discussing this idea of purpose and purpose-driven values as a bigger part of brand. I'm curious if you're seeing a trend where that type of influencer is growing to be more relevant than maybe a more traditional type of influencer. So I I make the reference in my piece, as I'm prone to editorialize, that we need more AOC, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, and Greta Thunberg, and less Kardashians, right? That was my parallel. 
I'm curious if we're seeing values as constructed through purpose becoming more a part of this equation as to where influence really lies. Is it more about what you feel and think or just about the commerce piece of it? I think both is really important. Influencers are self-identifying themselves as activists, environmentalists, or at least being sort of environmentally aware. And brands are starting to ask for it. Loads of brands now are going, well, look, if you buy this, we're going to plant a million trees, or we're going to save chunks of the rainforest, or we're going to help kids in Africa get water, or whatever it might be. And that's something one, influencers want to get really involved with, because actually that generation really cares about that stuff. That's also how they choose brands now. So it's not just because you put a big billboard up in Times Square. It's like, actually, you're doing something that's good for the world. And that could be the new recyclable bottles or that'll be made out of seaweed or whatever it is from Coca-Cola. That really matters to that audience. And if you want influencers to really believe in your brand, you have to do that stuff. So I think there's definitely a lot of stuff that is coming culturally around that. And that whole generation and the generation after them is going to be even more aggressive about what we do about the environment. And they're going to really push brands. And I think that's a really exciting thing. I think they are going to help shape what brands become. Someone like Coca-Cola, like considering how much transportation, how much pollution, how much plastic and all those types of things, like they will be forced as businesses to do those stuff because otherwise there'll be a whole generation in this case, actually, you're not doing anything for the environment and they will stop using them. And that's really dangerous for brands. I want to start to get you out on this because I want to go through two more segments with you, but I want to get this question in as well. What keeps you up at night as you think about the future of your business and how Takumi is kind of positioning itself? Like what is on your mind as like a principal issue that the industry should be aware of? For me, it's always how are we going to do what's best for our clients and what's best for the influencers? And what I mean by that is how can we make sure that we always continue to deliver incredibly good work that is impressive, award-winning, all those types of things, and really answers what the client needs. And that, for me, is because we're in a constantly changing environment. How do I make sure that they don't get pulled up by the FTC for something that hasn't happened? And so we work really, really hard to make sure that we know our space. And does that keep me up at night? Hopefully not too much. But for me, it's like, how is the industry going to develop? Like, what are those new platforms that are going to come through? What is it that the audience is actually really going to want? How can we make it even more creative? I love having come from spots in radio that the content was creative, but now like suddenly being able to work with hundreds of creators on a single campaign is super exciting. How do we expand that? How do we grow it? And so for me, it's keeping all sides of the party happy because I want influencers to have their influence, really. I want them to be able to talk to their audiences how they intend because I know that's how it works best for brands. Does that answer your question? It does. Minus the staying up at night, understanding that <laughs> that's a euphemism for just thinking hard about something. Yes. None of this should keep us up at night. <laughs> but for me, it's also, how do we keep growing? And especially like, how do we keep growing in new markets? So the US, we're a European headquartered business. We've got a great team in the US. But how do we, like, your country's a beast of a market. Yeah. Like, it's huge. And so for us to be a success here, like, how do we do that? How do we fully understand? And that's using the great people we have here to translate it for us, but to also tell us how we should be doing it 
properly in the U.S. That's super important because the U.S. is its own beast. I give you that. Oh, yes. <laughs> a beautiful beast. It is big. <laughs> a beast nonetheless. I want to jump into my last two segments, which is Off the Dome, where I'm going to ask you just some quick fire questions. And you just hit me back with the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay, cool. No pressure. <laughs> okay, cool. What is the worst hashtag trend you've seen? I don't know if it's a trend, but for me, it's just when people put 50 different hashtags. They all have nothing to do with anything. And they've worked out some strategy where if they put kitchen or shoes into something that has nothing relevant to it, that then suddenly they're going to appear in lots of other places. And sometimes that can work, which is the most terrifying thing. But for me, it's just like, really? And the audience can see it. And that, for me, is the saddest thing. It's like, you're not being smart. You're not being clever. That would be it. What's the maximum number of photos any one person should take in search of the perfect Instagram photo? That is a difficult one. I would say you never need to take more than 10. However, chatted to a lot of influencers, they can take 120 quite easily on a single shoot. So probably a reason why I'm not an influencer, actually. What city in, in your mind, from all the things you've seen, has the most obnoxious influencer culture? Well, it's probably less a city. It's more when you go on like beautiful beach holidays and there's people who literally just stand in the surf for, for hours in some beautiful spot and they've got the, the boyfriend or, or the girlfriend helping take all the pictures. But they can be there for like 45 minutes and it's just, they enjoy the sunset, like enjoy it. They just take pictures of it. So that doesn't exactly answer your question, but it's more of a, a generic. People who ruin beautiful sunsets, I think is probably a better way. To That's it. fair. I, I like it. It's acceptable answer. I'll Excellent. take it. Wonderful. Good. This last one, who's the one person everybody should follow? For me, there's a guy called Paper Boyer, and he does wonderful cutouts of silhouettes. And he then puts them in sort of like landscapes or in cityscapes. And it's just really cool. It's really creative. It's really fun and just different. I think everyone should follow him because I think he's really, really cool. All right. Give me his name one more time. Paper Boyo. Okay. Paper Boyo. Gotcha. That's perfect. And now our final segment is just called The Drop. It's a recommendation that we can give to our listeners of something that they should check out. It could be anything. I leave it really wide open. So hit us with your drop. It has to be. It's a podcast and it's done by the BBC and it's called The Missing Crypto Queen. I don't particularly know a lot about cryptocurrencies, but most people have probably heard of Bitcoin, which was one type of cryptocurrency. And this one is all about OneCoin, which is effectively a four billion pound pyramid scheme. A load of money was going in and none of it was coming back out. It was incredible. This lady, Dr. Aruja Ignata, ended up just disappearing with billions. It's incredible. So this journalist follows it around the world, is looking for her. Also, there are people still selling it, even though the FBI has just indicted a brother for fraudulent activity. Blah, blah, blah. It's just really interesting. And it's just terrifying how people got so into the cult of, no, 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 it's true, it's real. The interesting thing was that, in, and I don't know how much you know about cryptocurrencies, but it's sort of self-regulating because it's got all individual little ledgers everywhere. They just effectively put a big spreadsheet somewhere and they manipulated the price. It was nothing to do with demand. 
they'll just go, yeah, the price is £10 higher today than it was yesterday. It was incredible, but no one would question them. But then people were throwing like tens of thousands of pounds or dollars or whatever it might be. And they honestly believed that they were going to be millionaires when it eventually the exchange opened and you could get your money back. Problem is, the exchange still has never opened and it will never open. And it just ran away. But it's just this incredible story. And actually, you listen to the journalist and it's really interesting when he sort of goes, I don't believe they ever thought it was going to get this big, but it got to a point where it was so big that they just had to carry on with the lie because there's just too much money being cut past. That's a classic too big to fail. I like it. Yeah. (laughs) I like it. So I'd recommend anyone to listen to that. It was just really interesting and really well thought through and presented and stuff. So I'll give our listeners my drop. And it's an album from one of my favorite artists, Michael Kiwanaka. He released his new record a little while ago. It's titled after his name, Kiwanaka. Highly recommended. I think it's the best record of 2019 so far. Definitely check that out. Adam, this has been awesome. I'm glad we got a chance to catch up and talk and dive into these issues a lot more deeply. There's clearly a ton more than we can go through around influencer marketing and culture and all those good things. So that just means you'll have to come back on. Uh, That's such a pleasure. I'd absolutely love to come back on. I want to thank Adam Williams for joining me on this episode of The Deep Dive. We discussed all things influencer culture and influencer marketing. And yes, that is an important distinction. We covered the current business environment, as well as the regulatory shifts that are on the horizon and the general relevance of influencer marketing. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.